Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Today's episode is due to a listener request from a listener in Australia. I have many very dedicated listeners from down under, but this one is for Lim James. I hope you enjoy it. Also, I'd like to get a little shout out to Danko, who sent me a voice message. I'm assuming that you're in the UK due to the accent, and the fact that you refer to the B-29 not just by that moniker, but also you called it the Washington, which was the RAF's name for the bomber. The B-29 is most definitely on my list of warbirds to do, but as it was the penultimate bomber of the war, I'm almost afraid to do it too early. I'm not sure how long I'm going to do the podcast, but it would seem fitting to do that one near the end. I don't know. Let me know what you think. And whenever you send me messages, be it email, voice, or Facebook messages, please let me know where you're listening from, and even a little bit about you. I like to get to know my listeners. But let's get on with Lim James's request today. The TBD Devastator. Some warbirds get a raw deal when it comes to their legacy. For some of them, it's deserved. But for others, it's either bad luck, or perhaps a plane has been asked to do something for which it was unsuited. Or, in a time of great technological advancement, an obsolete plane has been asked to serve longer than it should have, instead of metaphorically being put out to pasture, and allowed to do easier tasks. The TBD Devastator, unfortunately, falls under this last category. Design and Development In the early to mid-1930s, the U.S. Navy needed new aircraft to operate off its new aircraft carriers, such as the USS Ranger, Saratoga, Enterprise, Lexington, Wasp, Hornet, and Yorktown. I mean, what's the point of having brand new spanking carriers if you don't have any modern aircraft to put on them? This request eventually led to the creation of such aircraft as the Brewster SBA, the Vought SB2U Vindicator, and the Northrop BT-1, which would eventually become the Douglas SBD. It was also the genesis of the topic of today's show, the TBD. The Douglas Aircraft Company designed a lot of revolutionary details into the TBD, so much so that the design was considered radical by some. It was the first monoplane design and the first all-metal airplane ordered for service with the Navy. As its main purpose was to carry a big, heavy torpedo, it needed to be a big aircraft with a long wingspan. In order to help pack more TBDs into a carrier hold, the design called for folding wings, which wasn't a first, but the fact that they folded by the use of hydraulic power was an innovation. It was to be powered by a 900 horsepower Pratt & Whitney R1830 twin WASP radial engine that hopefully would push it to a maximum speed of slightly over 200 miles per hour. The new aircraft would have a crew of three seated in a greenhouse canopy that reached over halfway to the tail. There was a pilot, a rear-facing gunner in the back, and a bombardier in between. During the attack, the bombardier would lay on his stomach just behind the engine, looking through a window in the bottom of the fuselage to release the torpedo or bomb. 
To defend itself, the aircraft had a single 30 caliber Colt Browning machine gun, operated by the rear gunner, and an other forward-mounted 30 caliber that was fired by the pilot. If you see pictures of the TBD in flight, it looks like the landing gear has gotten stuck midway during retraction. This was actually designed on purpose. They were meant to protrude about 10 degrees below the wing to protect the belly just in case the TBD had to make a wheels-up landing. In early 1935, the new aircraft was ready for testing. Prototypes Douglas presented its prototype XTBD to the Navy for acceptance trials that ran from the 24th of April to 24th of November 1935 at NAS Naval Air Station, Anacostia, and Norfolk. The Navy was quite pleased with the new aircraft, and only a few changes were ordered. One notable enhancement was that the flat canopy greenhouse was replaced by a higher domed canopy with a rollover bar. This was due to a request by the test pilots to improve visibility. All in all, this gave the new aircraft a pleasing streamlined look, which was not always the case with aircraft from the mid-1930s. The TBD was actually a good-looking aircraft. After completing testing for torpedo drops, the prototype was carrier certified on the USS Lexington. Although there were no major issues with the aircraft, it took two years to do service trials. We have to remember that this was pre-war and everything took much longer to accomplish without the pressures of wartime. Production In 1937, Douglas began delivery of the 129 examples of the TBD that the U.S. Navy's Bureau of Aeronautics had ordered, and these began to equip the carriers USS Saratoga, Enterprise, Lexington, Wasp, Hornet, Yorktown, and Ranger. When I first read the number, I was shocked by this small number. Only 129 aircraft ordered? Usually in our stories, that would be followed by a, and then they ordered 500 more, and then they ordered as many as could be produced. But no. Only 129 TBDs would ever be built. The reason was that things were changing so fast in the aviation world in the late 30s and early 40s that the TBD was already showing obsolescence a mere three years after being designed. Man, that was only as long as it took for the aircraft to be accepted by the Navy. Intelligence reports on the Japanese Mitsubishi A6M0 indicated that its top speed was well over 325 miles per hour, and the TBD only had a top speed of 206 miles per hour. And if you haven't heard my episode on the Zero, please give it a listen. It was one of my favorite to produce. One of the reasons is that the Zero, unlike the TBD, had a long operational life. And in order to try to keep it up to date, the Japanese did major updates to the aircraft all throughout the war. I get fascinated by that sort of thing, and maybe you do too, because you're listening to this. But this was not to be for the TBD. No more TBDs were ordered by the Navy or built, and a replacement torpedo bomber, the TBF Avenger, was already in the pipeline when the USA entered the war. 
By this time, general, run-of-the-mill wastage of aircraft had whittled down the supply of TBDs to about 100. Operational History Things started off well for what was now known as the TBD Devastator, or its nickname, Torpecker. In the opening months of 1942, TBDs from the aircraft carriers Enterprise and Yorktown attacked targets in the Marshall, Gilbert, Wake, and Marcus Islands. In March, TBDs from Yorktown and Lexington went after Japanese shipping off New Guinea. On the 7th of May 1942, during the Battle of the Coral Sea, the Lexington and Yorktown launched 22 TBD Devastator torpedo planes as well as 53 SBD dive bombers, with the attack force being protected by 18 F-4F Wildcats. They were on the prowl for a couple of Japanese carriers, but due to a coding error in the reporting patrol aircraft, these U.S. airplanes were headed in the wrong direction. But the error didn't really matter, because the attack force stumbled upon another Japanese carrier, along with her escorts and a convoy of other ships. It was the Shoho, a Zuiho-class aircraft carrier that had only been commissioned six months before. It was just after 11 o'clock in the morning when the first wave of SBD Dauntlesses nosed over for their attack. There were three Japanese fighters, two A-5Ms and one A-6M-0 engaged in combat air patrol at the time, and these in turn dove in to attack the diving Dauntlesses. The Shoho began maneuvering madly and managed to avoid all the bombs dropped by the SBDs. On the climb out, one Dauntless was hit, and downed by one of the Cap Zeros, and several other SBDs were shot up as they tried to extricate themselves. Shoho managed to launch three more Zeros to reinforce its Cap and try to protect itself from further attack. The next wave of Dauntlesses dove in only eight minutes later, and by this time two SBDs were successful. The Shoho was nailed by two 1,000-pound bombs. These bombs punched through the flight deck and blew up inside the ship's hangars. The fueled and armed aircraft within also blew up and burst into flames. The Shoho was badly hurt, and a couple of minutes later, it was the TBD's turn. The Torpeckers began their torpedo runs from both sides of the carrier and put five fish into her sides, flooding the engine and boiler rooms and knocking out her steering control. The SBDs took over again, and Yorkstown's Dauntlesses nosed over and plastered the nearly stationary target carrier with 11 more 1,000-pound bombs. Finally, it was Yorktown's Devastators who put more torpedoes into Shoho for the coup de grace. The TBDs had played a major role in scratching that flat top. At this point in the war, one might have been lulled into thinking the TBD's disadvantages of low speed and low ceiling were not going to matter much. Besides, the U.S. torpedo bombers didn't have much choice. Their new Avengers were just not ready in sufficient numbers yet. But these thoughts would be proven horribly in error just one month later during the Battle of Midway. But suffice it to say that on June 4, 1942, on an attack on the Japanese task force headed for Midway, 15 TB devastators of VT-8 were shot down with only one survivor of the 30 aircrew. 
Next, the Devastators of VT-6 attacked and lost 9 of its 14 with one ditching later. Finally, 10 of 12 Devastators from VT-3 were all shot down next. No torpedoes from these attacks did any damage. The combat career of the TBD was over. Immediately, all remaining TBDs were relegated to second-line duties. A couple of months later, when the Guadalcanal campaign began in August, all torpedo squadrons were flying the Avenger. Now, another major problem with those early torpedo attacks was the Americans' Mark 13 torpedo, which had major problems. But this episode is going to be kind of long, so it will be a subject that I will tackle in a future episode where I focus on the Avenger. Pilots. Now, some of you might be out there saying, wait a minute, Brian. You built us all the way up to this big, tragic moment at the Battle of Midway, and then you just drop us, kind of like the Japanese splashing all those torpedo bombers into the ocean? Where are all the details that we love so much? Where's all the nitty-gritty? Well, what better way to tell that story than to hear it from the words of a man who was actually there, participated, survived, and came back to tell the tale? George Henry Gay Jr. was born on March 8, 1917 in Waco, Texas. In 1940, with it looking like America was going to be getting into the war, Gay left the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas, which is now known as Texas A&M University, in order to try to join the Army Air Corps as a pilot. He was turned down for medical reasons. However, in early 1941, he gave the United States Navy a shot, was accepted, completed flight training, and was commissioned as an ensign in September 1941. He was assigned to the newly formed Torpedo Squadron 8, which was led by Lieutenant Commander John Charles Waldron, and the unit was aboard the aircraft carrier USS Hornet in April 1942, when Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle launched his raid on Tokyo. One week later, the Hornet arrived at Pearl Harbor to join the USS Enterprise as part of Task Force 16 during the Battle of Midway. And it was there that Lieutenant Gay would have his rendezvous with destiny. At some point after the war, Gay was interviewed by the U.S. Naval History and Heritage Command. From this point on, I'll be reading his recollections from that interview, uh, and I'll be editing and narrating as little as possible. Well, as you know, Torpedo Squadron 8 was organized in Norfolk, Virginia, and I think you know the history of the aircraft carrier USS Hornet, and where we went and what we did. I won't go into that, but I will say a little bit about Torpedo 8 and the things that they did before the Battle of Midway and before we lost the half of it that was in the battle stationed aboard ship. One thing I'd like to clear up right to begin with, Lieutenant Larson and his half of Torpedo 8 stayed in Norfolk when we left there in order to get TBFs and get the bugs out of them and get them fixed up for combat, and they were to bring them out and join us aboard ship. However, it happened that we were in the Battle of Midway, and he came out on a Saratoga, and they requested six planes from him to go to the island of Midway, and they participated in the battle that day. 
However, the bulk of the TBFs attached to Torpedo 8 at that time were in Honolulu and missed the Battle of Midway. I might as well start. Well, Torpedo 8 had a difficult problem. We had old planes and we were new in the organization. We had a dual job of not only training a squadron of boot or inexperienced ensigns, of which I was one of course, but we also had to fight the war at the same time and when we finally got up to the Battle of Midway, it was the first time I had ever carried a torpedo on an aircraft. And it was the first time I had ever taken a torpedo off of a ship, had never even seen it done. None of the other ensigns in the squadron had either. Quite a few of us were a little bit skeptical and leery, but we'd seen Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle and his boys when they hadn't even seen a carrier before, and they took the B-25s off. And we figured, by golly, if they could do it, well, we could do it too. It turned out the TBD could pick up the weight, so it was easy. We learned everything that we knew about Japanese tactics and our own tactics from Commander Waldron and Lieutenant Moore and Lieutenant Owens as they gave it to us on the blackboards and in talks and lectures. We had school every day, and although we didn't like it at the time, it turned out it was the only way in the world we could learn the things that we had to know and we exercised on the flight deck and did all kinds of things that we would have to do artificially because we couldn't do our flying most of the time. In the Coral Sea battle, we tried to get there and missed out on most of it, but we were able to, along around that time, to get in some bombing practice and do some submarine patrol. However, the squadron didn't get to fly near as much as we should have. As I said, we had no previous combat flying. We'd never been against the enemy. Our only scrap with them had been in taking Doolittle to as close to Tokyo as we went and in trying to get into the Coral Sea battle. But when we finally got into the air on the morning of June the 4th, we had our tactics down cold. And we knew organization and what we should do. We could almost look at the back of Commander Waldron's head and know what he was thinking. Because he had told us so many times over and over just what we should do under all conditions. I didn't get much sleep the night of June 3rd. The stories of the battle were coming in, midnight torpedo attacks by the PBYs and all kinds of things, and we were all a little bit nervous, kind of like before a football game. We knew that the Japs were trying to come in and take something away from us, and we also knew that we were at a disadvantage because we had old aircraft and we could not climb the altitude with the dive bombers or fighters, and we expected to be on our own. We didn't expect to run into the trouble that we found, of course, but we knew that if we had any trouble, we'd probably have to fight our way out of it ourselves. Before we left the ship, Lieutenant Commander Waldron told us that he thought the Japanese task forces would swing together when they found out that our Navy was there, and that they would either make a retirement in just far enough so that they could again retrieve their planes that went in on the attack, and he did not think that they'd go on the island of Midway, as most of the squadron commanders and air group commanders figured. And he told us when he left not to worry about our navigation, but just to follow him. And he knew where he was going. And it turned out just exactly that way. He went just as straight to the Jap fleet as if he had a string tied to them. And we thought that morning, well at least I did, when I first saw the Japanese carriers... One of them that was a fire, and another ship that had a fire aboard, and I thought that there was a battle in progress, and we were late. I was a little bit impatient that we didn't get right on in there then, 
and when it finally turned out that we got close enough in that we could make a contact report and describe what we could see, the Zeros jumped on us, and it was too late. They turned out against us in full strength, and I figure there was about 35 of them. I understand, that is, I found out later that they operated fighter squadrons in numbers of about 32, and I guess it was one of those 32 plane squadrons that got us. It's been a very general opinion that the anti-aircraft fire shot our boys down, and that's not true. I don't think that any of our planes were damaged, even touched by anti-aircraft fire. The fighters, the Zeros, shot down every one of them. And by the time we got into where the anti-aircraft fire began to get hot, the fighters all left us, and I was the only one close enough to get any really hot anti-aircraft fire. And I don't think it even touched me. And I went right through it, right over the ship. I think we made a couple of grave mistakes. In the first place, if we'd only had one fighter with us, I think our troubles would have been very much less. We picked up on the way in a cruiser plane, a Japanese scout from one of their cruisers, and it fell in behind us and it tracked us. And I know it gave away our position and course and speed. We changed after he left, but I know they knew we were coming. If we'd had one fighter to go back and knock that guy down and catch him before he could have gotten that report off, I believe the Japs might have been fooled some. Quite some time longer on the fact that our fleet was there, I think that might have been one of their first contact warnings, warning them that we had a fleet in the vicinity, and that got us into trouble, I'm sure. Also, we went into a scouting line out there, and we were still trying to find them, and I didn't, and the skipper put us in a long scouting line, which I thought was a mistake at the time. I didn't ever question Commander Waldron, of course. He had his reason for it, and I know he expected to find them, but he wanted to be sure that we did, and that's the reason that we were well-trained, and he, when he gave the join-up signal, we joined up immediately. I was only afraid that in the scouting line, in those old planes, we would be caught by zeros all spread out, and it would be much worse. As it turned out, it didn't make a whole lot of difference anyway, but we joined up quickly and we got organized to make our attack, and the Zeros got after us. Personally, I was just lucky. I've never understood why I was the only one that came back, but it turned out that way, and I want to be sure that the men that didn't come back get the credit for the work they did. They followed Commander Waldron without batting an eye, and I don't feel like a lot of people have felt that we made mistakes and that Commander Waldron got us into trouble. I don't feel that way at all. I know that if I had to do it all over again, even knowing what that the odds were going to be, like they were, knowing him like I did know him, I'd follow him again, through exactly the same thing, because I trusted him very well. We did things that he wanted us to do, not because he was our, our boss, but because we felt that if we did the things he wanted us to do, then it was the right thing to do. The zeros that day just caught us off balance. We were at a disadvantage all the way around. One of the disadvantages that Gay talks about is not having offensive guns on his TBD. He thought that if they'd had a few more forward-facing guns of a higher caliber, things might have been different. Let's continue with his narrative. When the Zeros attacked us that day, I was able, with my one fixed gun, to hit one. I know because I saw the tracers going into him. Of course, it couldn't hurt him with one thirty caliber. I had to fly right over destroyers, and they were shooting at me. If I had machine guns forward, and plenty of them, I'd have been able to give them a little trouble. Then as I got close enough to drop my torpedo, I could see everything on the port side shooting at me. If I had had some machine guns to shoot back at them, 
I might not have been able to silence those guns, but I could have made those gunners a little nervous. As it was, they were just sitting there shooting at me, and I wasn't shooting back at them. Then after I pulled up over the ship and did a flipper turn, I dove down right at the fantail of this big carrier, where they were rearming and regassing the planes. Gas hoses were scattered all over the place, and I know they were full of gasoline. If I'd had forward guns, I could have set that ship afire right there myself. But I had no guns to shoot with except for our one little pea shooter, the little 30 caliber putt-putt. And by the time I got there, it jammed. It either jammed or it was shot up. Then after I went out and I flew over another destroyer, and every time there was a target, and every time I had no guns to work on it. They seemed to feel that they didn't put guns in torpedo planes because we'd go off and fool around and get ourselves in trouble. I don't think they'd have that trouble with the pilots because I do think that they should have firepower forward and also aft to take care of themselves so that when the targets get in the way, you can at least have the self-satisfaction, if nothing else, of shooting at them. I really strongly recommend them forward. I find a lot of people who disagree with that, but that's my personal opinion on it. Bagay and his fellow TBD pilots were not really there to strafe ships. They were there to drop torpedoes. Next, he discusses his torpedo attack. Well, I was very lucky. Of course, I said it was the first torpedo I'd ever carried, and naturally, the first one I'd ever dropped. I had learned from Commander Waldron in his lectures that ships, especially large ships of that kind, when they commit themselves to a turn, it will be some time before they are able to straighten down, and usually he told us from reports that Japs will maneuver. So I came in with, of course, with the rest of the squadron. I keep saying I. I shouldn't do that. We came in to make attack on the ship, on her starboard side. When the squadron was finally wiped out, and I got in close enough to the Akak to pick me up, she was in a hard turn to starboard, evidently going to circle. Well, I got in close enough to think about dropping a torpedo. I saw she was in the hard turn, and I pulled out to the right and swung back and gave her a lead, and it was a perfect setup. I couldn't have missed if I wanted to, because all I had to do was give her about a ship-length lead. I dropped the torpedo, and was fortunate enough to get away from the anti-aircraft fire, although everything was shooting at me. I flew right down the gun barrel on one of those big pom-poms up forward. I think it must have been a 20 millimeter stuff. I looked in the sights and tried to get a shot at the fellow, but my, my gun was jammed by that time. I figured the only way that I could evade all that anti-aircraft fire was not to throw my belly up in a turn away from the ship, but just to go right through her and offer as small a target as I could. So I flew right down the gun barrels, pulled up on the port side, did a flipper turn by the island. I could see the little Jap captain up there jumping up and down and raising hell. And I thought about wishing that I had a 45 so I could take a pot shot at him. I couldn't have hit him, but if nothing else, thrown the gun at him. Just something. But then I dropped back on the deck and flew aft, looking at those airplanes on the deck. By the way, I had a thought right there in a split second to crash into those planes. That I don't feel is any suicidal instinct at all. I know that if I had been shot up to the extent where I felt that I'd only go over those planes and fall in the ocean on the other side, feeling that I was pretty near gone, just a matter of seconds, that I would have crashed right into those planes because I could have started a beautiful fire, and I figured that's the way the Japs do it when they crash into a ship. 
It's when a fellow is just gone and knows it. It's just crash into the ship or crash into the sea and you have enough control to do a little damage. Why, you crash into that ship. I dropped down after going over those ships and I didn't feel very badly. I had a left leg that was burned. The plane was still flying and I felt pretty good. I didn't see any sense of crashing into those planes. I thought maybe I'd get a chance to go back and hit him again someday. And as long as there's life, there's hope. So I pulled up and I went over them and dropped back down next to the water. And after I passed over the fantail, and then I heard the torpedo go off. Just a little bit after that, anti-aircraft fire hadn't picked up anymore, but the Zeros jumped on me and I was trying to get out of their fleet. Before I got away from them though, the five Zeros dived right down on me in a line and about a second or third shot, my rudder control and ailerons went out and I pancaked into the ocean. The hood slammed shut. I couldn't keep the right wing up. It had hit the water first and snapped the plane in and bent it all up and broke it and the hood slammed shut and it was in the sprained fuselage. I couldn't hardly get it open. That's when I got scared. I was afraid I was going to drown in that plane. I got out of there and I thought about my rear gunner and made a dive to try to pick him up, but I couldn't get to him. The first thing I saw after I came to the surface was the other of those two large carriers headed straight for me and she was landing planes. By the way, that was an interesting operation. The Zeros were coming aboard and they'd circle way back behind the ship, have 1500 or 1000 feet altitude above her and coming straight in on their low gliding approaches, coming in straight and they weren't landing planes nearly as fast as we do. It seemed to be a slow operation. I don't know what kind of arresting gear they had aboard ships. It seemed to stop them pretty well as soon as they hit the deck. Must have been a number of wires because when they landed in all kinds of different places, it would stop them right off. But I was a little bit interested in watching that, but I didn't care to do it at such close hand. They went right by me, about 500 yards to the west of me, and the cruiser that was with her was only a thousand yards screen, and I presume went by about 500 yards to the east of me, headed north, and they circled back. After the dive bombers came in and beat those carriers up and got them burning good, and they lost control of them, and they stopped pretty close to me. There was another Jap cruiser that patrolled up and down to the north and south line that came by me first to the east, I guess about two miles away, and turned to me, and I thought they saw me and were coming over. But instead of that, she just ran a 180-degree reversal and went back to the south. Then, during the afternoon, there was a Jap destroyer came pretty close to running me down. It came closer to me than any other ship. If there had been anybody aboard that I knew, I could have recognized them as they went by. Of course, I was hiding under this cushion, and instead of having my head above and out of the water, I presented the side of this little black cushion to them, and I hoped that they'd figure out that I was a piece of the wreckage. Pretty fair estimate about that time anyway. So I managed to not be picked up by them somehow. My main problems in the water, outside of my leg burning very badly in the salt water, I didn't know exactly what the matter was with it until I got to the hospital the next day. My hand was bleeding and I thought about sharks, and then I remembered that the concussions of the bombs and things, and I knew that sharks don't like those things, and I figured that they would be run off, and I think this is the case. But I swallowed an awful lot of salt water. My main difficulty was keeping my eyes open. The salt water finally got to my eyes to such an extent that I could only with great difficulty open my eyes and I would open them and scan the horizon 360 degrees and then shut them again. 
and then leave them that way unless I heard something or unless I figured that maybe a ship might have gotten close since I looked the last time. And I'd force him to open and look again. I got better on that score, much better after I got out of the water and was able to kind of clean my eyes out and get the salt water out of them. But Gay now had a front row seat, or shall we say, he was floating under a front row seat for the SBD attacks on the Japanese carriers. I was in a funny position to be cheering for the thing, but I was really tickled to see the dive bombers really pasting him, even though they were in pretty bad shape. But during the afternoon, after they pretty well burned themselves up, the larger one came close to me. The Akagi sank just after dark. The Jap cruisers raked her with fire and finished her off, and the other two, the Kaga and the Soru, burned all night, but they didn't necessarily explode. As a matter of fact, the Japs were there trying to put the fires out. I could see them playing around, searchlights, picking up people, and trying. I think they were trying to salvage those two ships. But the explosion that I heard the next morning turned out to be our submarines putting torpedoes into those things, and they finished them off. That was early the next morning, just as dawn was cracking. Lastly, he talks about when he was rescued by a Navy TBY Catalina. Well, I was sitting up in the middle of this battle area, and there was all kinds of things around. Oil slick and barrels and lumber, and the Japanese life rafts were black. I was in a big four-man yellow rubber life raft, and I know he knew, as soon as he saw that yellow boat, that I was an American. Of course, I waved to him, and I had my regular Navy t-shirt, took my khaki shirt off and figured he saw the Navy t-shirt, me in that yellow boat, and he'd know that it was one of his buddies. Well, the PBY came along, and he told me later about 6.20, and he circled me, and I knew immediately when I saw what it was, of course. I'd never cared much for P-boats before. I was sure glad to see that one. Since then, I always thought them as a very beautiful airplane. And by the way, they do marvelous work. They picked up an awful lot of people there. But he came over and he circled. One of the kids in the rear blister waved his handkerchief at me. And I knew that they'd seen me. I didn't expect them to stop. As a matter of fact, I would have been surprised if they had because I knew they had a job to do, and I knew that they had just come out from Midway that morning, fully loaded and on a mission to find the Japs. So he went off, and he was gone, and in the afternoon, about 2.30, he came back, and decided that I was too far out. They had already dispatched a PT boat to come out and pick me up from Pappy's message, he radioed back, but he said that he thought maybe they might not find me, and I was too far away. So he landed in the open sea and made a beautiful landing, came in right for me and he even lost all of his speed in the landing. He came by me with the fuselage of the airplane almost on one side and the wing float on the other. And he rocked me around and he got me all wet again, but I was so tickled to see him that it didn't make a bit of difference. He circled back and he picked me up. After Midway, Gay got a well-earned 30-day leave back in the States and then did a three-month tour with the Public Relations and Incentives Division, talking to workers in various war industries to encourage their work. He was back in combat later, in the Guadalcanal campaign with Torpedo Squadron 11, became a Navy flight instructor, and he was on the cover of Life magazine. He was awarded the Navy Cross, Purple Heart, and the Presidential Unit Citation for his actions in combat at Midway. 
and was later awarded an Air Medal. After the war, Gay spent over 30 years as a pilot for TWA and wrote a book called Soul Survivor. He was a consultant on the set for the 1975 movie Midway. On October 21, 1994, he died of a heart attack, and he finally rejoined the ill-fated members of his torpedo squadron when his ashes were spread at over the exact spot in the Pacific Ocean where the infamous attack had happened so many years before. Survivors It's highly unusual for an allied nation to have a warbird type, especially one with such fame as the TBD, with no surviving aircraft examples. But that is the case with the Devastator. The 39 remaining TBDs were immediately withdrawn from frontline units after the disaster at Midway, and they were relegated to training squadrons, either to train pilots and mechanics, or for the less honorable job of serving as disposable instructional airframes for firefighting training. By late 1944, the last TBD was scrapped, and none exist in any form at this time. Well, I shouldn't say in any form. The USS Midway Museum has a full-size replica of a TBD Devastator, which was originally built for the most recent Midway movie. Until somebody raises and restores a TBD from one of their watery graves, I guess that this one will have to do. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.